Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we're back on this Christmas Eve, I believe, if I got my dates right. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. With number 41, 1933's King Kong. King Kong. Ethan, have you ever seen this film before? King Kong, the 1933 King Kong, is one of my favorite films of all time. It is something I w- was very much obsessed with uh, it, when I was a young man in high school. I watched documentaries about it. I have it on DVD. I had watched it many, many, many times. Um, but it has been a very long time since I've actually sat down and watched it as an adult. Um in fact, this may be the only time I've sat and watched it with any real kind of attention as an adult. So uh, it, it was interesting to return to something that I really uh, loved as a young man. I have never seen this film until now, of course. But as is the case with many of these films, especially as we get closer and closer to the apex or the zenith or whatever you want to call it of the AFI Top 100. But as with a lot of films on this list... I had known a lot about King Kong because Mm -hmm. it's very enmeshed or ingrained, perhaps, in American culture today. It's hard not to have some familiarity with King Kong. Uh, It's been remade many times. There are lots of weird spinoff sequel sort of things. Um, They, in fact, I believe one of the they just remade it only a few years ago, right? Like last year, the year last year, twenty seventeen. which I have not seen yet uh, because I did not understand it was a remake. I thought it was a sequel to that uh, god-awful Peter Jackson remake. That was my impression as well, but looking into it for this episode seems like a complete remake, which yes. makes it a little more interesting in my book. But, Ethan, perhaps some people are not familiar with the 1933 King Kong, and I feel like a plot synopsis will really help them out. I think it would. King Kong is the story of Carl Denham, Anne Darrow, and Jack Driscoll. Uh, Those are all D names. Who embark on an adventure to film the elusive creature known as Kong. Uh, At the start of the film, Denham has assembled a large team and chartered a ship to an unknown location, but he has yet to find his female lead. The night before the ship needs to sail to avoid being delayed... Denham searches the streets of New York himself for a woman to recruit. He saves Anne Darrow from being arrested for theft and offers her the role in his film. She's very beautiful. She, being out of work, agrees, and the ship sails on time. On the ship, she and Driscoll, uh, and Jack Driscoll is a high-ranking sailor. I think he may be the first mate. Uh, They get to know each other, and despite his very strong disdain for women the two fall in love over their long trip when denim reveals their course uh, an uncharted island the skipper balks but he eventually agrees they land and they see the natives performing a ceremony where they sacrifice a girl to kong they call her the wife of kong and the natives attempt to trade for Anne, seeing her as an ideal sacrifice because she is blonde and white the team returns to the boat but during the night the natives kidnap Anne and offer her to kong who is revealed to be a giant ape as we all know the sailors and denim follow and discover monstrous dinosaurs on the island many are killed that is both dinosaurs and people but driscoll survives and follows after Anne. 
Kong, carrying her back to his lair, fights a T-Rex and a snake-like dinosaur thing, but doesn't realize that Jack has tailed him. Jack does save Anne, and the two return to the shore, but Kong follows. After a rampage in the village, Dunham is able to subdue the creature with gas bombs and plans to take it back to New York as an attraction. Back in New York, uh, Dunham sets up an exhibition and it sells out the first night, completely sold out. Kong is revealed to the audience, and when the press arrive on the stage to take photographs, their flashes alarm the creature, and it breaks free of its chains and goes on yet another rampage throughout New York, searching for Anne Darrow. Once he captures her, he climbs to the top of the Empire State Building, where he's besieged by airplanes, and just before he is killed, he reaches down for Darrow lovingly, but then tumbles to the ground, and his death as the film ends. I think this is a fascinating movie. It, it, it really is. And I think that fascination for me in this viewing began very early on. So, in fact, my pivotal scene for this film happens just about 10 minutes in. Mm. This is where Denim is there with the theatrical agent in Driscoll and the skipper. They're all sitting around the table. And Denim says, I guess I have to go find a girl, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't want to use the exact wording just yet because I'm going to listen to the scene and we'll talk about it. Okay. Because the public, bless them. Must have a pretty face to look at. Sure. Everybody likes romance. Well, isn't there any romance or adventure in the world without having a flapper in it? Well, Mr. Denham, why not take a picture in a monastery? Yeah. Makes me sore. I go out in sweat blood to make a swell picture, and then the critics and the exhibitors all say, if this picture had love interest, it would gross twice as much. All right. The public wants a girl, and this time I'm going to give them what they want. I don't know why you're going to get her. I've got to get her, Weston. We've got to leave here on the morning tide. We've got to be gone by daylight. Why? Well, there's a good reason. Everything I hear about this thing makes me like it less. I'm glad I didn't get you a girl. You are, eh? Well, I'll show you. You think I'm going to give up just because you can't find me a girl with a backbone? Listen, I'm going out and make the greatest picture in the world, something that nobody's ever seen or heard of. You'll have to think up a lot of new adjectives when I come back. Where are you going? I'm going out and get a girl for my picture, even if I have to marry one. Denim says, I'm going to go find a woman for my film, and leaves the scene to find a woman, ostensibly for the film he's going to make, but actually for 1933's King Kong, right? He's out there getting the heroine for the film. Yes. It's this meta-theatrical commentary that really made me sit up in my chair and say, oh, this film is interesting it, it knows some things it's doing some things here that we don't really see at this age yeah it's it's really strange because it it is this it is this strangely meta approach that we see again on the ship when he starts filming the, you know these test scenes um and he you know we get to see him coach the actress on what she's going to see uh but of course, we actually get to see her do that in the world of the film later, and so it's it's this weird, uh, almost sort of um, it's similar to Brecht's like V effect, like it reminds you that you're watching a film, right? Um, that's not exactly what the the V effect does, but, you know. It's designed to alienate you and and remind you you're viewing a play or whatever. But this is sort of a version of that, which is so strange for something that is so early on in film. 
Yeah, and I think this really guided my viewing the rest of this film because you mentioned the scene where you got those test scenes that they're filming, mm-hmm. and then she makes those exact same expressions when she's been captured and offered to be the bride of Kong. She makes those same expressions there as well. So we do see, again, the fact that this is a film about a film and those two bleed together and they're permeable was incredibly interesting to me. But I think there are other things going on in this film around the same time as the pivotal scene that I mentioned. They're talking about women. They call them girls because Mm -hmm. it's the time and the diminutive (laughs) is very popular. We're going to be recording an episode about White Christmas later. And that is another similar thing, even though that's Mm -hmm. about 20 years later. But we get the idea that Denim and Driscoll really know the plight of women. Was it that they say, they say like, oh, the danger is that a woman will be facing in the jungle is no worse than what they face here in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think, I think they say that New York is worse than like, they will be safer with these men on an uncharted island than they will on the streets of New York. And they even have that scene when he goes looking for uh, a woman where um, he goes looking at, like, the women's shelter, right. you know, uh, and and seriously considers going over there until, I guess, the women are too uncouth for him or what, whatever. Um, but, yeah, so there there is a strange commentary on, like, the the plight of womanhood uh i think a lot of that though is is undermined by i mean jack driscoll is is pretty bad he literally says at one point like i think i love you and she's like i didn't even think you liked girls like yeah well she says but you hate women and he says yes but but you hate women yeah women right you're a woman is the implication i suppose (laughs) the idea that they're aware of the plight of women the fact that there's the shelter line. This is, you know, depression mm-hmm. era United States. So this he's aware of the plight of women, but no one seems to do anything about it. Driscoll hates women without knowing women. And he when when Jack Driscoll meets Anne Darrow, he literally punches her in the face. That's accidentally. True. But he I that I I caught that. I didn't catch it at the beginning of the scene because I must have looked down or something. Um, and I looked back up and then he said something about like, I'm sorry, I really hit you there. Yeah, and I was like, one, wait, what? It? Yeah. And yeah. And he really does. He like fucking punches her in the face and then it takes him to the end of the scene to be like, oh, by the way, I guess I should tell you, I'm sorry for punching you in the face. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah. I think that's supposed to communicate how rough and tumble Jack Driscoll is. Right. Yeah. But we also have some problems while we're on the topic of women for a number of reasons. So they say some smart things about, hey, it's tough out there for women. But then we have our ostensible heroine. The reason that Denim sort of falls for her as his leading actress is that she's faint with hunger. So she's mm-hmm. emaciated and she's faint. And that's the ideal woman. So that says a lot right. right there, I think. And, you know, even today in 2018, you could say very little has changed in that right. model. Well, and, and, and even the story here about Kong and... And is that like Kong? She's she's to be his bride, and she's right? a blonde, like, and that's why he's fallen for her, right? And he goes maniac because she because you're right, could because she's blonde and she's white, yeah. Um, and and there's that scene too, and I it had been a long time I'd forgotten about it, but King Kong literally 
strips her almost completely at one point as yep. though like is is the implication that king kong wants to fuck this girl because yes. if king kong wants to fuck her this movie is weird <laughs> well so that's that's where we get into some deep waters and i think i want to turn back to that a little bit later with another yeah 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 interesting point but to finish up my earlier point about women is that sorry yes. and darrow doesn't do anything this entire movie except for scream no. and faint and fall down yep she needs a man to save her right so that's very in keeping with the times, which I think undercuts severely some of the commentary about women that the film was positioning early on. Yeah. Well, and this film does set itself up to be, I mean, in the first 20 minutes, uh, they say Beauty and the Beast about 450 times. Yeah. They really want to let you know that this is a film about, you know, beast, beastness. And I guess bestiality <laughs> and and beauty, right? And the and the beautiful woman in this film is, like you said, emaciated with hunger, uh, blonde, white, you know, uh, good at being saved, and that's about it. Right. And to return to that scene where she's being stripped by Kong, which is uncomfortable, but I have to admit, I was watching this with my wife, and at that moment, I looked at her, I said, "You know, this is someone's fetish somewhere." Oh, yes. You know that there's somebody out there that's like, fuck yes. Fuck yes. King Kong, get out your monkey dick. Like, what? Yeah, so you know that's true. But he's stripping her down. He makes her dress into pretty much a skirt and, Mm -hmm. of course, takes some of her clothes off her shoulder to do that kind of Mm -hmm. bedraggled, sexy look that has been replicated a billion times and still is today. And Mm -hmm. then they... Few minutes later, jump into the water, and now she's soaking wet and mm-hmm. half dressed, and it's like very little has changed. You know, you keep um sexing up the female protagonist. I don't think we can rightfully right. call her a heroine, even though I did that earlier. And I think this is also important because this gets us back to those code era, the nineteen mm-hmm. thirties codes. This is right before, and so things were taken out after the fact. That was one of the scenes, the stripping down of her that you mentioned. Mm. Also, several scenes in which it becomes very clear that Anne Darrow is not wearing a bra. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all her ship scenes, she's you know sort of prominently thrusting her chest forward. Mm-hmm. Those were also taken out. And there was a scene taken out even before the codes where giant spiders and insects eat a bunch of sailors. And apparently yes, it was so graphic. Yeah, the lost scene, yeah. Yeah, because it was so graphic that the director was like, whoa, that just like kills the movie, took it out, and now it's just gone. Yeah, there are there are scraps of images out there in the world to be found, uh, but that but that scene itself is lost, which is which is a scene that they recreated in the uh, Peter Jackson film. Yeah, so we do have most of the stuff restored to us, and as as you say, there is that forever lost scene, even though we do have some images and stills. But it is interesting mm-hmm. to see how this film has been transformed throughout time based on what they thought was proper. And we've had a lot of experience with the codes now throughout the AFI mm-hmm. Top 100 that I thought it was interesting to bring back up. Mm-hmm. One other thing I think is pretty interesting about this film is the fact that all these white sailors come in and try to dominate nature. Mm-hmm. And and literally the natives. I mean, the black people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, them as well. And certainly Kong is part of this. But I think that scene with the Stegosaurus is pretty telling. Yeah. Where they see a stegosaurus, which I was like, whoa, a stegosaurus. I did not right. expect that at all. 
And their answer is just to kill it, right? They just destroy it immediately. It. Well, there's even, and they make a comment about it. One of them, Jack Driscoll or somebody said, or maybe Denim, one of them says, I'd love to bring one of these home alive. And it was like, well, dude, you didn't have to fucking shoot it in the face 40 times. And I think that's what's really important about this movie. So the director and creators are on record saying there are no hidden meanings, right? There was this really big miscegenation story subplot you know the sort of conspiracy mm-hmm. theory that kong is actually about the dangers of miscegenation and why mm-hmm. you know bluntly black people and white people shouldn't mate right mm-hmm. they've denied that and they say there are no hidden meanings in this film now i agree that there are no hidden meanings but i think we have to think in sort of the new historicist model that there are meanings that are brought out by the time which they're created that you can't help but put into your film. So I think you're justified in saying there is some racism in this, both overt with the natives and maybe subtextual with the idea of Kong being related in that way, in that racist way. Yeah. He's well, he is a subhuman ape. He's not man. He's not beast. He's in between. He's a God. He's a demon. It's part of their conversation on the ship. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it it is pretty obvious that there there is a way to read this film as as about miscegenation um, and and as about race, uh, y- you know, without even having to necessarily jump into or really acknowledge a, a lot of the painful stereotypes, um, you know, used uh, to to demean black people. Um, I mean, I think it's there's just some pretty obvious stuff here. Uh, and, and, and the idea that you have a a blonde white woman running through the jungle, you know, by the God of the black people, you know, I mean, it, it, yeah. And so that's really nice that the, uh, the filmmaker said that it doesn't have any hidden meanings and it's like, well, that's great, but I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I think there's lots of stuff there to, to, to pick apart. Right. I think we're right for criticizing the film for that. And I think we're entirely justified in seeing that as a potential reading, but I also see them writing against some of this with the whole yeah. white man's exploitation of the world where yeah. you're not supposed to see Denim as a good character. No, I don't think so. I think you're right. Like, I think we are meant to see Denim as like, you know, in over his head. He's gone too far, particularly in bringing the King Kong back to New York. Like, yeah, that it's is hubris. pretty obviously a bad idea. And what catalyzes kong's escape in that moment as you mentioned your plot synopsis is the media Mm -hmm. it's all those flashbulbs going off so we have the exploitation of the natural world and the propagation of the image i think at one point some guy in line to that premiere says he spent 20 bucks for those tickets yes and i i did the inflation Uh it's like almost 400 dollars. right i had that figure as well because i know you're really interested in that and yes that's 400 bucks for a ticket to see kong and i was telling my wife when we were looking at this i said if they raise that curtain and you see kong there the only reasonable thing you can do is just run the other direction right like that's crazy that people are like oh how diverting Right. Well, and then also just I was thinking about this watching it this time. What is the Kong show supposed to be? What it appears to be, these motherfuckers paid $400 to sit in an auditorium, see this giant ape chained up uh, in front of them on stage. And then I guess Carl Denham was just going to like talk about his experience. Well, nothing scripted. 
He just was going to be like, look upon the ape. Yeah. There and it is. so if I'm a producer of this show, I say, tell the whole story first, introduce the characters, then right. show Kong, and then, you know, go back and circle back around to who Jack Driscoll was and who Anne Darrow was and what right. Denim did and that. But, you know, I'm still against the idea of it. Of the, the point here, of course, is that this is about spectacle. And yes. this is about the consumption of image, consumption of the natural world, commodifying mm. nature, commodifying the world, and trying to exploit it. And I think the film itself is critical of that because we see Denim's hubris and the fact that Kong does escape and kills people. And though Kong eventually falls and Denim at the end is like, and the pursuit of beauty has killed the beasts. I think we're supposed to see that as a little tongue-in-cheek because I think Denim believes that. But I think what we're really seeing is a meta-commentary, again, on the expectations and exploitations of film itself. And and I think there's the romanticism of of what is essentially colonialism and capitalism and, and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like... Uh, <laughs> you know it, tw- it was beauty killed the beast like no in fact it really was not in fact it was you dude you brought that thing here and be you know like it just is like what are you talking about what are you talking about right and he's a shady dude i mean that's the thing he's a shady dude the only reason that Anne gets in any trouble is because he's like bring her bring her onto the island it's like dude you don't know what you have no idea what's going on there yeah it's, it's it, he's he's a skeezy dude yep and that old arabian proverb at the beginning of the film which was written for the film but it is about the dangers of beasts going for beauties which again you can read that as the movie's stated thesis you can read this subtextually anti-miscegenation you can also read that as this commentary about how film itself doesn't understand what it's doing it's exploiting and it's creating expectations for the public that are spectacle based in nature and that's a problem no, I mean, I think you're right. And, and and yeah, I think there's certainly a level to be read. The beauty here is the beauty of the film. And we have to say, I mean, this is particularly understanding the, the context of its release. I mean, this film is a beautifully done film. Um, and its special effects are, are really fucking good. Yeah. Really good. Uh, particularly for 1933. And this is, I think, is something that maybe we should talk about in the context of our three questions, since we're kind of running yeah. along today. So I'll just yes. jump right in. Ethan, what do we owe to this film? Well, I mean, I think we owe so much. Um, King, the King Kong, the, the the sort of visual images that we've that we've taken from this film and that have been um, saturated into the into a particularly American culture are are almost too many to name. Right? I mean, obviously, there's the uh, the Empire State Building and the, you know, the, I mean, and this is a Beauty and, a, and Beast story. And I think that this film has absolutely um, influenced in some small way every other Beauty and Beast story that comes after it, right? Uh, it, it really is telling you, you know, it's, it's beating you over the head. This is a Beauty and the Beast story. And yeah. I think we could say something about genre here as well. A couple of genres, yes. in fact. So this on the AFI, I think, has this listed as one of the greatest horror films of all time mm-hmm. and one of the greatest fantasy films of all time. Yeah. So this idea of Kong as horror makes a lot of sense in the modern context. we got a monster flick yeah. where, you know, there's lots of devastation. People have set this in motion because of their own hubris or their own folly or mm-hmm. science gone too far or people 
tampering with knowledge they shouldn't tamper with. I think that's closer to the case with Kong here. But in yeah. the end, the monster's defeated and their survivors get to look on in superiority, effectively. Right, yeah. But I think what's more interesting about this film is how modern it feels as an action movie. Yeah. So definitely. I know people say there's like this 1903 film that was the first action movie, at least what I looked around in a little bit. But I think Kong is incredibly modern because there are two examples that really stood out to me as being utterly modern in their presentation. The first and lesser example being that train car sequence when he's in mm -hmm. New York City and just bashes up the train car for no reason, right? It's spectacle mm -hmm. for spectacle's sake. And the second and most important and most awesome, the T-Rex fight. Yes, the T-Rex fight is fantastic. It's amazing. It's several minutes long. I think it took days or weeks to shoot it because it's all stop yeah. motion. Mm -hmm. But that fight is genuinely incredible. The choreography for that fight is still really cool. And apparently Kong knows judo and jujitsu. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, if I remember back years and years ago, uh, a lot of that fighting uh, that he does, the sort of flips and the and the takedowns or whatever were i mean they went and looked at 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 wrestlers and and things like that to uh model it off of that because kong is again not quite he's not really a giant ape he's he's some sort of in between missing link creature right he's supposed to be kind of human-like right and also just the, the the kinds of special effects that we see that that complement all this. There's the shot where the, she's Anne is in the tree and the T-Rex bumps into it and the tree gets knocked over. But the way the camera moves is it's as though you are on the tree with her and they cut. I mean, it just is the, it, it is really stunning to see how, you know, modern that is, because there are I mean, there are action films. And, and I guess adventure films, too, out there that try to do these sorts of things but do not have the nuance um, or the or the filmmaking chops to, to rival this thing from the 30s. Right. And you also got the idea that they're using rear image projection one of the first yeah. time so that actors are appearing on the same screen with the same screen time as the stop motion monsters. Yes, and what's really interesting too uh, is that, and I, well, and I guess this goes back to our question. We've kind of shifted a little bit here, but with this question, I mean, what do, what do we owe to this film? I mean, we really do owe modern special effects. I I believe to this film um, because not only are they doing things like that rear screen projection where you have actors walking in front of a screen, but you also have uh, the the reverse. You have actors rear screen projected onto model sets and sometimes in several different places mm -hmm. um so they would have these 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 very large sets and you've got maybe Anne up here in a cave and uh driscoll down here in another cave or walking around and sometimes he stop motion but sometimes you have two projections going on that are projected on the actual set of the of the the diorama basically mm -hmm. um which is just wild, you know, that they're able to do this and that they're like, I, and I actually was able because I, it's in high def now and I have, I've never watched this on high def. Uh, it was amazing to see. There's a scene where um, Anne is rear screen projected onto like Kong is holding her and he's, so his arm and her are a projection, but then he's moving 
um, stop motion in front of, and, and it's it's seamless. I mean, if it weren't in such high definition, it, you wouldn't be able to see that stuff, which is just crazy. Yeah, and I, I fully believe that modern practical effect producers, creators, artists have to see this as a very important film for yeah. that, for the continued survival of practical effects in a special effects capable age like 2018. Yeah, yeah. So, Ethan, do we care about this film? I mean, I think the answer is a resounding yes. I mean, th- that is not to say that this film does not have its its problems with race and gender and even perhaps uh, some of its sort of colonialism and, and capitalistic endeavors. Um, but there, this is a film that it, it's hard to imagine the, the world without it. Uh, it is such an important part of our culture. Uh, and it's become such a part of our cultural shorthand that I, we we have to. I mean, it, it, it just the fact that it was remade last year yet again. Uh, this is this is something that that has stuck around, and it's from the '30s. This isn't you know Greek myth. This isn't you know based on folklore. This is completely invented you know in the '30s, and and you know it it is it is part of at least American culture, if not international culture. You know the world. Right, and that's why it's in the Library of Congress, of course. But mm-hmm. I also have to agree we care about this film. I think the things it does with gender and colonial exploitation and exploration, I suppose, I think it does enough to undercut a lot of the problems with those things. At least it's aware there are problems. No, it doesn't try to solve those or make like grand right. statements about them. But I think at least opening up a little bit, deconstructing some of those ideas is important. Although I will say, I don't think it does anything with race that is deconstructive in nature. And yeah. so I still think that's, that's a problem just like yeah. Charlie on the ship is a problem. Yeah. But I think maybe we're asking it to do too much at this point. I do think it is aware of some things. It still does have its cultural or moral or ethical blind spots. Yeah, no, I agree. So our final question, Ethan, is does this film hold up? Uh, and I think that it's pretty obvious through our conversation that that it it does in a lot of ways. Uh, the effects are are still pretty fantastic, and like you said, I mean that that T Rex fight is you know that's better than some things I've seen in the last few. I mean, we how many movies have we watched for this list? We're with today. We have now watched about 110 films for the podcast. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I can tell you that this is a scene that is still gripping uh, after having seen it many, many times and having seen lots of other much more inferior films. Um, As we've pointed out, it's racial politics in no way hold up, uh, and some of the stuff with gender and colonialism don't necessarily hold up very well, but but it's it's still an interesting and 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 really sort of i've said gripping like 10 times uh you know fascinating film yeah and to build on some of the things you said earlier i was positively giddy during the t-rex fight like oh wow there's a single leg takedown oh wow there's a judo toss oh wow he's rear naked choking this t-rex and now he's ripping Mm -hmm. its jaw apart oh my gosh right yeah the the jaw i gotta say this the the jaw breaking of the t-rex's jaw in that fight is the first time I watched this film, I do remember having a reaction to that and being like, what? 
I mean, because you, you know, whatever the sort of sound effects they, I mean, they're, it's gross. I mean, he rips that thing. He breaks its jaw pretty brutally. And then we have Jack Driscoll come up to it later, blood streaming out of its broken oh, jaw and it's still oozing, breathing. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that thing unsettling. was, it didn't even die. Right. Like it's, it's brutal. Sorry, but I interrupted. No, 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 that's fine. I really did enjoy that scene for all of its awesome action and all of its grotesquerie. And I do think we've covered the ethical stance of this film pretty heavily in this episode, but I think it's important mm-hmm. we continue to do so. I think we are right for taking it to task about race. I don't think yeah. we can trust the creator that saying there are no hidden meanings in this film. I think those meanings might infiltrate themselves because of the time. Uh, and just because you don't have an overt intention to do something doesn't mean you've still not done it. And also, you know, filmmakers lie, authors lie, and it, you know, it, it, you can't really trust them. You just can't. That's one thing we learn as literary critics and scholars is, you know, writers and authors and creators, not the best judge of their own work sometimes. No, no. And we'll continue our critical efforts, of course, as we move forward on this list and into the new year. This is the last episode for the canon list of the AFI Top 100 for There Will Be Spoilers. <laughs> we will be back the new year. We will have part 12, I believe, of the rundown. <gasps> part 12. And then we will also come back with The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music. Ah, everyone's favorite. On New Year's Eve, however, we'll be back with a bonus episode for our patrons of the arts. That's on Patreon only for our generous contributors and that film will be white christmas white christmas a little late but that's okay um and you know just with the patreon in mind you know we want to thank all of our patreon supporters and also this is the season of giving and if you like what we're doing uh you know support us please support us you know we we would love to see uh a few more smiling faces uh on our patreon list so check it out guys we 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 do this for you absolutely we'd greatly appreciate if you did it for us but merry christmas if you celebrate happy holidays if you don't enjoy yes. some time off if you've got it but until next time i've been matt bazell and i am ethan knight and there will be spoilers ah it was spoilers killed the beast there Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.